This morning I'd like to open our time together by reading a letter, a small excerpt from a letter from the year 1811. I'm not going to tell you who it's by or who it's to. You might pick up a few clues if you listen hard. And then towards the end of our time together this morning, we're going to return to this and see how it kind of illustrates for us the things that Jesus is going to talk to us about in this morning's text. So give your attention to this letter. The, the, the language is a bit archaic. We don't speak this way much anymore, but I think you'll be able to understand what is going on here. The writer says, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure to a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? For the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God, can you consent to all this? in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory, with a crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise, which shall resound to her Savior from heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair. Imagine receiving that letter as the father of a daughter. I want you to hold on to that. I want you to hold on to that very stark request by this man to the parents of the woman that he intended to marry. And then, like I said, towards the end, we'll see how it turned out. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 13 this morning. We're going to be beginning in just a moment in verse 44. I want to kind of remind you, you know, it's been a, a unique time in the life of our church. You know, we're still mourning the passing of a dear brother and dear friend in Christ, Bobby Wilkins. Please would urge you to continue to pray for his family. Continue to pray for them in their grief and minister to them and reach out to them. And you, you might recall that last week... We looked at the words of Jesus from John uh, chapter 13 where we're encouraged to love one another and love one another in such a way that it is obvious to an unbelieving world that we have something different, that our priorities are different, that our, our objective in life is different, that our outlook on life is different. Today we're going to get back into Matthew, if only for a week, because next week Aaron will be preaching on the vision for discipleship for our church. But today we're going to jump back in to the end of chapter 13 where Jesus has been talking to uh, his disciples but also to the assembled crowds in parables. So before we read today's text, what I'd like to do is, is kind of remind us what a parable is, why Jesus spoke about them, and why they're even relevant to us today. And so you might remember that a parable, just quite simply put, is uh, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, kind of a succinct definition there. Jesus would tell these earthly stories about agriculture and about, uh, about uh, fishing and about hidden treasures we're going to talk about this morning. And he would say, now, now this kind of helps you understand what the kingdom of heaven is like. Th this kind of helps you understand what I've come to tell you and what I've come to, uh, in a sense, uh, inaugurate for you. This, this invasion of the kingdom of God in to the lives of people. He say, it's like this. 
And he would give several examples. But then he goes on to say later in chapter 13 why he speaks in parables. And we learned a few weeks ago that it kind of messes with our sensibilities a little bit, doesn't it? Because he says there, actually, I speak in parables because I know, and in fact, I'm concealing from those who are not going to understand. I'm speaking in a way that I know 100% is going to be foreign to them, that their, their eyes are not going to be open. And we think, well, now, Jesus, now, can we just have a little chat off to the side here? If we're really trying to do this evangelism thing effectively, don't you think we ought to do it at a level that everybody can understand? And certainly that's God's desire. God's desire is that all would hear the gospel and that they would repent and that none would perish. But at this time in salvation history, Jesus is intentionally concealing his message, particularly to the Pharisees, particularly to those who think that they understand what God is doing. They think that they are following him correctly. They think that they are honoring God by keeping all of these rules, most of which they have made up. And Jesus says, no, 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 you're missing it entirely. But then he says to the disciples, but you guys are going to be given understanding. You guys are going to be given an enlightenment of the heart and of the mind to be able to understand the things that I'm telling you. We're going to see that revealed in today's text. And so if you would, go ahead and stand with me as we often do. We're going to stand as we read God's word together. Again, we're in chapter 13, beginning in verse 44, and we will go down to verse 52. Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers and threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? And they said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would illuminate our minds, that you would enliven our hearts and our spirits to be able to receive your word. We, we confess that it's only by the Holy Spirit that we are able to understand your commands and that further that we are able to even obey them. And so, Father, I ask that you would convince us that we are able to obey them with your help. I pray this morning that we would see as we wrap up the parables that if we claim to understand them, that we have responsibility for what we've understood. Father, be with us in this moment. Father, speak through me in a, in a way that honors you and keep me from saying anything that would dishonor you. I pray for these precious saints that they would hear your word and that they would heed it. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. And so this morning, what I'd like for us to do is kind of uh, ask the question at the very end of this text that Jesus asks to his disciples. The question is quite simply, have you understood? Have you 
understood. And I would like for us to look at three different aspects of this kind of grouping of, of verses that we've decided to preach on this morning and, and ask, have we understood three specific things in this text? The first one would be, have we understood value? Have we understood value? Secondly, have we understood judgment? Have we understood judgment? And then lastly, have we understood our assignment? Have we understood our assignment? So that's what I'd like to do is I'd like to walk us through those three things. I'd like to, to answer the question there, have we really understood? You know, I'm struck by, just to jump to the end of the text almost, I'm struck by the way that the disciples answered this question, aren't you? Matthew, just, he just records it. Yes. Yes. Now, if, if you've read the Gospel of Matthew, if you've read any of the rest of the Gospels, you know that that is a very suspect yes. Is it not? Because there's going to be times after this where the disciples are going to be completely clueless. There, in fact, Peter has to be rebuked by Jesus because Peter is trying to prevent Jesus from going to the cross. And so Jesus says, get thee, well, old King James on us here, get thee behind me, Satan. You think, well, Peter must not have understood. <laughs> and so the yes here is not entirely comprehensive. And, and, and I say that to you because I want it to be an encouragement to you and to me. That we can say yes to Jesus even if we don't fully understand. You need to hear that. You need to hear that you can say yes to Jesus for this level of obedience, for, for this task that he has put before you, even if you don't understand what is happening tomorrow. Even if you might not have theology completely figured out. Come talk to the, one of your pastors for a little while and you'll see we're in the same boat. Come, come sit in on our staff meeting. Well, depends on what's happening in the staff meeting. But just come and sit in, right, and see we've tried to say yes to Jesus and we don't have it all figured out. And so the disciples in this moment, I think, are answering with integrity when they say to Jesus, yes, we have understood. And so let's backtrack and look at what, what exactly is Jesus asking them that if they've understood. Let's we'll start back in verse 44. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. So that's where we pull this issue of value from. Right? And the second parable is very much like it. These parables are grouped together. In some of your Bibles, they might be under the same heading. And essentially what is happening here is Jesus is saying, look, there is something so valuable in this thing that we're calling the kingdom of God that it, it is worth everything. Right? That, that it is worth forsaking all things. That, that it is worth you uh, selling whatever you have to sell and going on whatever journey you have to go and digging however deep you have to dig because it's that kind of treasure. It's, it's that kind of jewel. You know, it made me think of this. I'm, I might be indicting myself for being too worldly. I'm not sure, but I'm just trying to be honest with you. I love the sitcom Frasier. I don't know how many of you ever used to watch Frasier. Very witty humor. And, and Frasier and his brother are just so stuck up and so pretentious. And every single episode, they just get knocked down. Their ego is just getting knocked down. And I love it, actually. Um, I sympathize with them a bit. Okay, so they just, they just really, you know, get it. So they have a father, you, you might know, and their father is just a plain guy. He's just a man's man. He was a retired cop, shot in the hip. I mean, you know, this whole deal. And uh, he is just undone with their pretension in most of the cases, most of the episodes. Well, the show Antiques Roadshow comes to town. Antiques Roadshow is a show where they take normal people who bring heirlooms and junk 
to them and they, they say, well, is this valuable? Is this, is this an old thing? And you know how it goes. The people who think they've got a million dollar piece have a two dollar dollar general purchase and the people who think that they have a piece of junk have like the last remaining you know sculpture in the world that a museum's willing to pay untold amounts of money for and so martin the father he finds this this ugly as sin bear clock in his closet it's a bear with a clock in the stomach and it is about as ugly a thing as you could see and fraser and niles they just ridicule their dad i mean they absolutely ridicule him they are embarrassed that he wants to take this to the antiques roadshow they won't even stand beside him in, the, in the, the camera frame. Well, all of a sudden, if you've seen that episode, he, the, the appraiser looks at it, and he just becomes dumbfounded. And he says, Martin, where did, where did you find this? Well, I don't know. It's in my closet. My grandma gave it to me. My, you know. And he says, you don't understand what you have. You, you don't understand the value of this treasure. And what do you see in the, in the background? Fraser and Niles creeping over his stupid grin on their face, you know, looking at the camera like, oh yeah, we were in this all along. It's kind of a silly illustration, but what does it show? that <laughs> There was this treasure, and they, they go on scheming for the next several minutes, figuring out how can we capitalize on this treasure. Now, that's a worldly example. If you've seen the episode, the whole thing falls apart, as they always do. But they, they were committed in that moment to making sure they got the most out of that treasure. It, it became valuable to them. Now, obviously, the gospel, the kingdom of God, our salvation is so much more profound than a silly little bear clock that may or may not have worldly value. But the illustration is, is right on because it tells us that when we realize that we have something of supreme value, that we are willing to make sacrifices, right? that we are willing to, to make fools of ourselves, that we are willing to accept ridicule, that we are willing to do whatever it takes to get this treasure in our possession. I think you see that with this man who goes and he realizes there's a treasure in this field. And he says, how can I buy this field? What do I have to do? What do I have to sell? What do I have to give up? What do, what do I have to, to forsake to get this? And he does it. And he buys the field. And then, and then the next one is, is very similar to it. It talks about a merchant in search of fine pearls. You remember per pearls are, 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 are throughout the Bible, even, even in, in Revelation, um, some of the fixtures in, in the new heavens and the new earth are going to be made out of pearl. So it's a remarkable imagery here and obviously very valuable in Jesus' day as well. <clears throat> and this merchant goes and he's already looking for fine pearls, but then he finds one of great value. Being an astute merchant, being an astute appraiser of pearls, he says, now this this is worth me selling all that I have. This is worth me forsaking all these other things. This is worth me letting go of all these other things so that I can possess it. I think of another imperfect illustration as it may be, but I think about how many of us in here are homeowners. We would call ourselves homeowners. Well, actually, probably 90% of us who would call ourselves homeowners may not be the most accurate term because try missing a few payments and come back and tell me if you own said home. <laughs> We're home buyers, right? We, 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 we live in a home that we have decided fits our needs, but what have we had to do for that? We've had to sacrifice. We've, 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 we've had to be diligent. We have, we have decided that for whatever reason that this thing is of supreme value and so other things get pushed to the side. Again, an imperfect illustration, but what it tells us is that we naturally do this, right? In every area of our life, 
We naturally sacrifice sometimes to get things we don't need that we shouldn't have. And then other times to get things that are profoundly important to us. But built into us is this understanding that good things require sacrifice. And so Jesus is telling his disciples, listen guys, this is something of extreme value. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves, just like the disciples, is have we understood the value of the kingdom of God? Have we really understood its value? And I think this is an issue that all of us have to just be right, straight honest with ourselves about, right? This is not an issue of, of us living in a, in a church full of Pharisees, and this is not an issue of me telling you that you don't value it as much as me or, or I don't value it as much as you. No, 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 no. The issue is allowing ourselves to look into our hearts and say, what is it that stops me from valuing the kingdom of God in a way that it should be valued? Right? If I'm this merchant and I know that I have this pearl that I can go and get, what is stopping me? What is stopping me from embracing and truly understanding the value of the kingdom of God? It's only a question that you can answer yourself. It's not a question that your neighbor can answer for you. It's not a question that your pastors can answer for you. And it's a question you can't answer for us. It's a question that we have to be honest with the spirit of God with and say, what is it that stands in my way? Oftentimes in the church, we, we think that that's just issues of sin, don't we? We think, well, I need to quit doing this, quit going there, quit saying this, quit thinking like that, etc. and so forth. It might very well be true. But I've heard it once said that good is the enemy of great. And so sometimes there are good things in our lives. Sometimes there are, there are fun things in our lives that aren't inherently sinful. But they prevent us from attaining this pearl. They, they prevent us from recognizing the supreme value of the kingdom of God. So that's just a simple, under, a simple question to ask. Have you, have I understood the supreme value of the kingdom of God? And number two, this is a difficult one. We have to ask, have, have we understood the issue of judgment? Have we understood judgment? Look with me back in verse 47. Verse 47, Jesus says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This, this parable could have just as easily been paired with the parable of the wheat and the tares, the wheat and the weeds that we discussed several weeks ago. The premise is exactly the same. That right now on earth, you have evil and you have good. That should be plainly evident to every person. Whether or not you are a believer or whether or not you are far from God. It is plainly obvious as, as recently as last night's breaking news that there is evil in this world. And I hope it's ob also obvious to you that there is good in this world. Now that doesn't get reported as much. But you know it. You experience it in your own life. You, you know that there is good. You know that there are good people. That You know that people do good things to each other. And so Jesus is just simply saying, look, this is the world that we live in. There are evil people and there are righteous people. And sometimes, if we're honest, we want to put ourselves in the righteous camp and we want justice to be served. Don't we want to say, God, you need to come clean this mess up because all this right here is a bunch of nonsense. Now, meanwhile, we have difficulty looking in the mirror, don't we? 
<laughs> we have difficulty looking in the mirror and asking, do I resemble a weed more than I resemble weed? Or do I resemble a junk fish more than I resemble a desirable fish? It's a helpful question for us to ask. But the issue here is that, <coughs> excuse me, that at the end of time, God's going to sort it out. God's going to sort it out. And, and, and we were urged a few weeks ago to have patience for that and to, 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 to just trust and know that in the end, God is going to sort it out. Paul picks up on this theme in, in Romans. He says, hey, listen, you need to leave vengeance to the Lord. You need to leave vengeance to him. Because he keeps correct accounts. <laughs> he keeps an accurate balance sheet. And he will settle them on the last day. He will settle them. So you, you leave vengeance to him. And so we have to ask the question, just like the disciples were asked, have we truly understood judgment? And there's two levels of this, all right? There's two levels. The, the first level is we, we need to understand that, that judgment is going to, bef to befall all people. Right? I, I want you to think of the two men who were on the cross with Jesus, who were, who were on either side of him. That's always been a helpful way for me to think about how God divides humanity. It really is that simple. The one criminal, mocked, rebuked, yelled at, cussed, whatever you want to say, Jesus, with his dying breath. The other criminal says, please remember me. Please remember me. Friends, that's what, that's what we need to ask. <laughs> because you and I are just one of those two criminals. I mean, it really is that simple. That we are either rebellion, rebelling against God, hating him, turning away from him, or we are pleading with him, please remember me. Please remember me. It's the same thing here, right? There are good fish, there are bad fish. In the previous parable, there are wheat and there are weeds. And so before we can settle the issue, and before we can desire that judgment be brought against the world, we need to ask, is judgment going to be brought against us? All right, we, we need to understand that what's going on here is a challenge for us to say, am I the good fish? Not Now notice, not you know, did the good fish wake up one day and think, well, I can change my scales, and I can change the position of my fins, and I can change my gill structure so that when the fisherman catches me, I will be a desirable fish? Of course not. Some of you guys are bass fishermen, and y'all tell me sometimes you, you catch a catfish and, uh, like on a crankbait or something that's disappointing to you. I think you're silly because I like to eat catfish, so you can give it to me next time. But, what, but why are you upset about that? Because you're bass fishing. I want to catch a catfish. That's undesirable. Throw him back. Well, that catfish in mid-fight can't go, oh, my goodness, you know, I really want to be desired. So let me, let me just, I'm going to go from a, from a smooth skin to scaly skin and the whole deal like this. No. That fish is just who he is. That fish is just who he is. And so for us, we, we have to ask ourselves, we have to realize that it is only by God's grace. Now, of course, we know, could God change the composition of that fish? In an instant. In an instant. But that creature is dependent on God to do that. You and I are no different. We are dependent on the Spirit of God to change us from bad fish to good fish, from weeds to wheat. So what we have to realize is this is not an issue of our own strength. This is not an issue of us being better or thinking better or acting better, although those things all naturally flow out of our response to being saved and being brought into the family of God. But we have to come to the realization that we are entirely dependent on God's mercy in our life. We are entirely 
dependent. Now, we're, we're going to see in just a minute we're also responsible, right? We, we are responsible for our choices, and we are responsible to respond when God takes the initiative towards us through his spirit and through the preaching of the word to say yes to him. But I just want to encourage you that, that you cannot be made righteous on your own. You cannot be brought into the good family of fish or into the wheat harvest simply on your own effort. You must trust in the mercy of the one who is drawing the net and the one who is reaping the field. And so that's the first issue is we have to, we have to realize, like, where do we stand in the judgment? Where do we stand in it? Are we trusting in a foreign righteousness of Christ? Are we trusting in his finished work for us? Are we trusting in his provision for us? Or are we, are we just trying to figure it out on our own? Are we just trying to make ourselves better? No, friends. We have to trust in him. We have to rely on him. So that's the first level of asking the question, have we understood judgment? And then the second level is, have we understood that judgment is coming to the entire world? Right, that judgment is coming to the entire world. And it's incumbent on us to warn them. Now we can confess that the Christian church has not always done the best job of warning. Can we not? We can confess that the Christian church has sometimes warned in a way that was unnecessarily offensive. That was unnecessarily harsh. But make no mistake that when we warn, it will be labeled offensive. It will be labeled harsh. It will be labeled bigoted. It will be labeled fill in the blank. And so, friends, it's, in, it's incumbent on us, and it, it, is, it is a tremendous weight and responsibility to trust in the Spirit of God, to do it in a spirit of humility, to do it in a spirit of gentleness, but to do it with boldness and to say to our friends and coworkers and so forth, judgment is coming. Judgment is coming and it is real. You think of the story of Noah. How ridiculed he must have been. How outcast he must have been. And then think about the first raindrop. I'll remind you, it had never rained before. Do you remember that part of the story? It had never rained before. And so Noah is ridiculed. Noah is made fun of. Noah would have been committed to a mental institution had they had them in, in that day. And then there was a raindrop. And then there was a raindrop. Think, think, think about what would have happened in the minds of those mockers and scoffers when the raindrop came. Of course, you know the rest of the story, the, rain, the raindrop followed by another and another and so forth. And so we, we, have to, we have to feel the weight of our responsibility to warn about judgment. Jesus warned about judgment. We claim to follow Jesus, ergo, we warn about judgment. It's a pretty simple formula, but we, we, we just need to be encouraged and challenged to do it in a way that honors him, to do it in a way that respects the, the imago Dei, the image of God in all people, to do, to do it in a way that is kind and compassionate, but to do it in a way that is clear. Do it in a way that is clear. And so that's the issue when we ask, have we understood value? Have we understood the supreme value of the kingdom of God? Have we understood the issue of judgment? And then lastly, have we understood our assignment? Have we understood our assignment? Let's look at verses 51 and 52. But Jesus asked the question again, or rather for the first time, have you understood all these things? And they said to him, yes. And he said to them, 
Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Um, I'll confess to you that this particular part of uh, this text is extremely difficult to deal with. There, there's a variety of opinions from a variety of commentators about what the particulars are in this text. This right here is just another reason for why we try to preach expositionally through books of the Bible because it doesn't allow us to, uh, to skip over the more difficult passages and the more technical passages. But what I will tell you is I will spare you all of that and I will just tell you that I have landed in agreement with one particular interpretation uh, that I read from a man named D.A. Carson who's a well-respected New Testament scholar. And that, we're going to kind of proceed with that. If you're just really nerdy like me, feel free to go find commentaries after this and you'll understand what I mean. But I want to be clear that none of the varied understandings of these couple of verses have any bearing on the doctrine that we're about to, to uncover. You understand what I'm saying? They have no bearing whatsoever on the essential message. All the arguments are over technical issues of translation and where the emphasis is and all those kind of things. And those are not unimportant, but they're not the main thing. So I believe we can confidently say that the main thing in this passage, in this portion of our passage is the issue of our assignment. The issue of our assignment. I, I say that with confidence. And so what I want to submit to you is just this very simple formula. And it, it's just providential how this worked out because next week Aaron is going to pick up and preach an entire sermon on the issue of discipleship. So this is just going to be a perfect segue uh, for, for that time with us next week. But I want to submit to you this simple formula that a Christian equals a disciple who equals a disciple maker. Now, I want to repeat that. A Christian equals a disciple who equals a disciple maker. Those three things, those three phrases, those three identities, those three tasks, those three labels cannot be separated. They cannot be separated at all. Now, to be sure, there are sometimes in our life where we wear these labels better than others. <laughs> there are some times in our life where we're firing on all cylinders. But what I'm talking about here is the trajectory of the Christian life, the trajectory of a person who claims, like the disciples, right? What, what is he saying? Have you understood what I'm telling you? Simple answer, yes. We're asked the same question. Jesus says, have you understood my message? Have you understood that I am the Savior? Have you understood your need? Have you understood that you're separated from God? Have you understood that you're under wrath unless you trust in me? If we answer yes to all those questions, oh, then we have an assignment. We're on the hook. We are on the hook. So he says to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house. Let's just pause right there and talk about this issue of a scribe. Now, if you're, if you're an astute Bible reader, you will, you will remember that the scribes oftentimes are not spoken of in positive terms, right? They're often uh, linked in with the Pharisees and they're men who typically were very prideful. They're very well educated. Still happens in our day. They're very prideful and still very well educated. And they have decided that they kind of have figured out this religious thing and that if you do not do it like they do, if you do not follow their rules exactly, then you are kind of excluded from God's family. This is what infuriated the Pharisees about Jesus, is that he went to people who did not follow them. Why does he eat with tax collectors? 
Why does he hang around women he shouldn't hang around with? Why is he talking to that person, the Pharisees would always ask. And so we think, well, now Jesus is talking about a scribe in a, in, in a positive situation. Well, what's happening here is if you look at this phrase, therefore every scribe has been trained. We'll take that and kind of put it in brackets. We would say there, every, every person who learns, so we're, we're going we're to think about a scribe as being one who is learned and who has, who has been taught or instructed. And then when he says here, that trained in the, lost my place, sorry, the trained for the kingdom of God, the word there is the same word that we get disciple from. It's the same word in Greek as uh, matheteo, or that's the verb, more form, mathetis, my Greek is horrible, but where we get the word Matthew from, the writer of this gospel. Matthew's name means disciple or learner or follower. All, all of those are kind of encapsulated in, in, that, in that definition. And so what Jesus is saying here, he's saying, okay, guys, talk, talking back to the disciples, and then of course by extension to us, by extension to us, those of us who claim to be his disciples, he's saying, now listen, you've, you've claimed to understand, so you've received some training from me, you've, you've been taught in the, in, the, in the ways of God, you're, you are able to instruct others. And then he says, but, but you are followers, right? you are disciples, you are being trained for the kingdom of heaven. And so you have an assignment, you have a job to do. And so while, while the disciples are, are rightly called that, that the men that he's talking to here are ones who have been trained. You might think of being trained as, as, as knowing the Old Testament. Now, the disciples, see, this is what's often the case. You may have heard this before, that the disciples are sometimes called stupid or just like all shucks country boys or all they just, they didn't know what was going on. That's an unfair portrayal. That's an unfair portrayal. These men would have grown up, all of them, most all of them, they were, they were all Jewish, and so even if they had occupations like a tax collector, they would have all grown up surrounded by a, 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 a structure of discipleship. They would have been familiar with the Old Testament. They would have been familiar with the instructions that God gave, with his laws, with his ways. And so Jesus didn't just go pick up yokels off the street. These guys had fishing businesses, and they ran tax collecting booths, and they were not stupid guys. They, they were not dumb. They just weren't a Pharisee. They just weren't recognized. They didn't have a degree hanging on their wall. These guys aren't stupid though. They know their Old Testament Bibles. They, they know the, the stories of old. They know what God expects of his people. And so he's saying to them, you know all of this. So you have a job. You have a job. He says, you're like a master of a house who brings out his treasure, what is new and what is old. That phrase there, what is new and what is old, I want us to look at that here as, as we come uh, to a close in just a moment. What is the treasure? Well, I think it's pretty easy to say that the treasure is the kingdom of God, right? That the treasure is the revelation of Jesus Christ, the knowledge that he is the Messiah, that he is the Savior, that he is the one that God has been talking about from the beginning. Even from Genesis chapter 3 when it prophesied that the seed of the woman would overcome the seed of the serpent. And, and, and all throughout the Old Testament seeing pictures of the work of the Messiah. <coughs> He's saying, that's the treasure. And so what is your job? What is your job? Scribe, the follower, disciple, the one who's been trained for the kingdom of heaven. Your job is to bring out what is new and bring out what is old. And so we think, well, what's new and old? Well, quite simply put, these men are being commissioned to take the old, which would have been 
all of the prophets, all of the law, all of the wisdom literature. That many of you are reading through the Bible in a year. You're, you're, I'm not really sure where you're bogged down right now, but just keep going. And all of that stuff, okay, that he's saying, you guys have got to know that. You, you guys have got to be in tune to that. You guys have, have got to, to, to know this. But you have something that the Pharisees don't have. Right? So remember, he's been preaching the parables to the crowds. He comes back to the disciples and says, have you understood these things? They say yes, so now the, the audience narrows significantly, and he's talking directly to these men. And he's saying, you're not bringing something new in a sense that it's unheard of. You're not bringing something new in a sense that, that it's going to be wildly popular and novel and like flashing signs and I'm selling snake oil and all this kind of stuff. No, 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 no. What you are doing is revealing that God is doing a new thing in the work of Jesus Christ. Right? Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that all throughout the ages, God spoke to his people through the prophets, through the fathers, through the patriarchs, and so forth. But then the writer of Hebrews says, but in this day, in the last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And so these disciples have a front row seat to this new revelation that God is giving, giving, giving to the world. But actually that new revelation is just a fulfillment of all of the revelation that has come before it. And you and I have the exact same assignment, the exact same commission, if we co-opt the language of, of what we call Matthew chapter 28, where we're sent out into the nations to make disciples. You and I have the responsibility to understand the meta narrative of Scripture, the overarching story of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, not perfectly, <laughs> not have it all nicely wrapped up into a neat bow. But, but friends, the truth is that there's no such thing as a Christian who says, well, I just don't understand all that stuff. I just love Jesus. Are you kidding right now? Find me that in the New Testament. Find me a Christian who will say, I'm just hanging out over here with Jesus, but I'm not going to concern myself with the finer points of theology. I'm not going to concern myself with right living. I'm not really going to concern myself with being in church. I'm just going to speak blunt to you. That's nonsense. That is foreign to the New Testament. So this is what he's telling these disciples. like, you guys are living with me. You're, you're going to die for me. You, you, you are staking your lives on this. So you have this treasure. You have this treasure. And your responsibility is to bring it out. Your responsibility is to teach it. This is why it's really kind of disingenuous for any of us to say, well, I'm not really a teacher. That's not true. You may not have the spiritual gift of teaching. You may not be particularly inclined to teach. But I promise you, over the course of your life, you have taught someone something, good or bad. <laughs> you have modeled a good habit or a bad habit. You have taught your kids how to brush your teeth, their teeth. You, you have taught someone something. And so the challenge there is that every disciple of Christ, while they may not be a preacher, they may not be a Sunday school teacher, they may not be a, a gifted orator, that's, that's not an issue. The issue is we have a treasure. We have something to teach. We have something to pass on. The disciples are going to model that for us in the book of Acts, in the early church. And then all throughout church history, we can find examples of, of men and women who have uncovered that treasure, who have seen the supreme value of something, and then make complete fools of themselves to make it known. Make complete fools of themselves to get the message out. They have seen the treasure. They have brought out of it what's new and old and said, look, this all culminates in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And then urge others to believe on him. I told you we would return in just a moment to our opening, uh, our opening letter. 
if you've read any Christian biographies or if you've heard, studied the early missions movement in the United States, you might know of a man named Adoniram Judson. Adoniram Judson was the first true foreign missionary from the United States. He was a, he was a contemporary. Actually, William Carey came a little bit before him. William Carey is kind of known as the father of the modern missions movement, but he came out of England. Adoniram Judson came actually out of America and had a great burden for the people of India and then eventually for the people of Burma, of Myanmar. Let me just read to you kind of the epitaph here to this, this letter, uh, an explanation to, uh, to what we read earlier today. It says here that Anne Hasseltine married Adoniram Judson on February 5th, 1812. So there's the, there's the result of that letter. I don't really know if they gave their consent or not, <laughs> but they got married. The couple left for India and ultimately Burma that year, but she never returned, dying of disease in 1826, a victim of the long, dreadful months of disease, death, stress, and loneliness that had been her station for 21 months. Their third child died six months later. When Adoniram Judson himself died many years later, they left 100 churches in Burma and 8,000 Burmese believers. Today, Burma has the third largest number of Baptists worldwide. So Adoniram Judson in 1811 sits down and writes a letter to a man and says, let me remind you, will you consent to her exposure to dangers of the ocean? To the fatal influence of the southern climate of India? Can you consent to all this? Listen, for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God, can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise which shall resound to her Savior from heathens saved through her means from eternal woe and despair. This is a heartbreaking challenge to me. And it should be to you. Because Adoniram Judson found the treasure in the field. He found the pearl of great price. He understood the reality of judgment and he understood his assignment. And he fulfilled it. I pray that he would be an inspiration and a challenge to all of us. Let's pray. Father, we ask this morning that you would help us to see the, the implications of, of what we read here. To, to help us to see the, the realities of, of what is